So last week, I, uh, while we were at Camp Manitoba, I intentionally took up just one part of this section, section from verse 18 to 4, verse 1, took up the one section of what does it mean for husbands to love their wives, and then also the section of addressing children obeying their parents. And I intentionally skipped over the section, uh, what it means for wives to submit to their husbands. And I decided that this week, we are going to talk about women and slaves and masters all in one message. Now, I have received feedback. I've received feedback from uh, summer staff. I've received some comments. And I've even received a little bit of feedback from just some raised eyebrows of how, Paul, you are going to skip over wives submit to your husband. Hmm. A little bit of raised eyebrow communicates a lot, just so you know. Uh, as a, I had one, one man, um, I'm not going to say whether he was part of this group or not, and, uh, but he, he asked me, Paul, are you going to be just as hard on wives as you were on men? Just making sure there's equity, right? Be, be equal opportunity, um, hard on people. I also had uh, someone jokingly come up to me, I, I pray, uh, that he said, um, Paul, I see that you're kind of lumping women and slaves together. Are you trying to make a subtle point? And I'm going, hmm, no. For the record, that, is not, that was not my intent, of lumping women and slaves together to make a point. But comments and discussions like that remind me that these issues, the, the very issues of being Jesus-centered at home and at work are very, very relevant to where we are today in 2016. Extremely relevant. There, there's a good deal of, uh, a good measure of controversy surrounding this text and other texts like it, particularly when it comes to the role of women in the life and in this culture. The issues that we're dealing with today are extremely relevant and extremely important. So my goal this morning, my hope is to help us all think biblically so that we can live practically. Think biblically so that we can live practically. Here's, here's my aim, and I want to address two things uh, to help us think biblically so that we can live practically. First of all, I want to help you to think through how we answer questions that come our way when it comes to this passage. How do we handle some of those tough, real gut, gut questions that people have when it comes to sections like, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. How do we handle questions? So, so what does that mean? Really? Do we have to do that? Questions that relate, these questions ultimately relate to how do we interpret the Bible? How do we interpret the Bible? If you have never faced these questions before, let me tell you, in the years to come, you will find yourself addressing this question more and more and more. I also want to help us specifically Think through how do we apply Jesus-centeredness when it comes to womanhood and the workplace. What does Jesus-centeredness look like 
in the home or, or for a wife? What does it mean to be a, bo- a godly, biblical, and Jesus-centered woman in 2016, 2017, 2018? What do, how does Jesus, being, you being centered on Jesus, impact your place in the, your, your place in the work world? So that is our aim. I, I hope today that you are going to uh, walk away having a better understanding of how do we read Scripture, understand Scripture, interpret it, and then how do we take that and apply it to our lives. Underneath this text is a big question, namely, how do you understand the Bible? How do you understand the Bible? And this is a bigger question because it really informs the answers that you arrive at. How you read and how you interpret the Bible has a direct impact, a direct correlation to the conclusions that you come to. How you read, understand, interpret has a direct impact as to the conclusions that you come to at the end of the day. So, The issues in play here are not just about women. It's not just about slaves. It's not just about masters. It's not just about husbands. It's not just about children. It is ultimately on how do we handle the word of God given to us? And then what conclusions do we come to? So I want to kind of play out a scenario for you uh, that will help you identify and illustrate the problem. And it comes in the form of two questions. And we're going to start with the issue of slavery. Does the Bible support slavery? That's that's a question that I have heard as somebody in ministry uh, from people. As they're they're looking at the, the New Testament, they look at the Old Testament, and they say, well, apparently it seems like God supports slavery because it's found in Scripture. So we've got to answer that question. Does the Bible support, endorse, and encourage slavery? And secondly... Depending on how you answer it, if you argue that the Bible's teaching on slavery is a matter of cultural context, you understand what I'm saying? It's, slavery was addressed then because there was a cultural thing back there in that time, and it was only dealing with that problem at that time. If is, the Bible's teaching is only on slavery for that time, then what extent does that cultural argument then apply to the other roles that we have in Scripture, particularly women? So I trust that you can see how this is important. I've seen it played out, and I'm going I'm to do a... I, I have in here a cut and paste from a Facebook conversation that I had with somebody on this very subject. And listen to how it played out with this person. The Bible seems to support the institution of slavery. And the only way around that issue is an appeal to cultural context. That the teaching to slaves should be applied differently today because of the cultural differences today. Further, since the cultural role of women has also changed, do you see how this is going? Also changed, we need to see the Bible through similar lenses when it comes to the roles of men and women in marriage and in the church. And here's the kicker. And finally, we must also see sexual ethics 
through this lens and make the case that monogamous homosexuality is no longer sinful. Do you see the progression that took place? So underneath this whole discussion of slaves and women and homosexuality is, is the important question as to how do you deal with cultural matters and when do you apply those as principles, right? Please understand, not everyone takes like that Facebook post. Not everybody takes it to that extreme. But some people do, and some denominations do. Some churches do. So it is important for you to understand the nature of these issues and for you to realize that underneath some of these pretty familiar topics is a very important issue as to how do you study the Bible. So let me answer each of those questions that I've raised and help you think through and walk through these issues. So the first question was, does the Bible support slavery? The answer is with a great big resounding, no. The New Testament and the Old Testament never commanded slavery. If you remember back in our, our walk through Exodus, I, I explained what does this whole, what does the culture of slavery look like and how did that all work out? And in the New Testament, you also see that it is, Paul was not providing instruction as to how slavery that there should be slavery. In fact, he is talking about how it should be regulated. And the instructions to slaves were not to be inferred as an endorsement of slavery in any way. Here's three reasons why I think we can make that case. Number one, the Bible clearly indicates that forcefully putting someone into slavery is absolutely morally wrong morally wrong. And slavery in the New Testament is a significant, it was significantly different than our understanding here in our North American context. Completely different. I don't think Paul has slavery as we have in our minds when he wrote the book to the church in Colossae. Two totally different things going on. We also see that the Bible frequently gives instructions on how to conduct oneself in evil situations while making no endorsement of the situation itself. You can see that in Matthew chapter 19 when it comes to divorce. It speaks about divorce, but it gives clear instructions about how to live in this tenuous situation. Persecution in Matthew chapter 5 or unjust laws in Matthew chapter 5. Therefore, the Bible regulates slavery without inferring divine approval. God regulates it without giving any kind of approval. But you also see that the Bible makes very specific statements about the equality of slaves and masters, the equality of slaves and masters, and call slaves to even free themselves if it is possible. And you can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So I think the Bible gives principles of how slaves should conduct themselves without endorsing slavery at all. 
And I think that those principles, knowing what the institution looked like back then, those principles should be transferred to the workplace relationships that we have today. It was a social service relationship where people would be supported when they could not pay their bills. They would come under contract, if you will, under the care, the loving, providing care of a person, a household. They would live in their household and conduct work, and they would be given freedom after seven years, and they would be even given gifts so they can financially flourish. That's the, the gospel causes people to flourish. So please don't let anybody ever tell you that the Bible supports or encourages slavery because that is absolute pure garbage. A careful look at this passage shows that that just simply is not the case. So we have to ask the question, does the cultural context relate to the command for women as well, right? Well, Paul, if you're transferring slavery and just saying let's apply it to the workplace, does that now say women, things have changed culturally, so then let's, let's change that as well. Let's move it to another column. I, I'm not convinced that the distinction of roles for women is a cultural issue in the same way as it was for the issue of slavery. Here's the question why, or answering the question why. Why? Number one. The role distinction is based on an appeal to creation. It's based on an appeal to look at the perfect created order in the garden. Genesis 1 and 2. God created everything and it was perfect. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 or 1 Timothy chapter 2 and you're going to see that Paul is constantly appealing to gender roles and responsibilities specifically by looking back to God's perfect created order. That is the way that we are to live. Go back to that. So secondly, we can see that there is a clear teaching on role distinction in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or first, again, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And the Bible never, never indicates that these roles change. It has never indicated it. But what we do see, thirdly, especially in Galatians chapter 3, that there is a clear sense that role distinction does not equal inequality. There's neither male nor female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. They're all one in Christ. So de depending on nationality and role and ethnicity, all who are in Christ are one. There's total equality and it's not dependent on role distinctions. So it is clear to me that the interpretive issues surrounding slaves do not apply in the same way to women. Although some would link these two issues together, for me and from what I see from Scripture, they are completely different. The Bible's teaching regarding women, to me, 
seems absolutely clear, even if it is uncomfortable at times. So the last thing I want to do this morning, and this is, uh, I, I shared this with the worship team beforehand. It, it is uncomfortable at times for a man to stand up and to give a sermon on wives, submit to your husband. Most of the stink eye comes from wives who are being re- receiving this instruction. It's like, are you serious? I want to see how this is going to play out, Vroom. I want to see how this works out. You better be careful, you know? There's kind of the fear of being shot on the way out of church for me, you know? Or hearing next week the reports from the husbands. Dude, you killed me this week. So there's, there's part of me that I, I don't want to communicate that women are, have any less value. So hear that first and foremost. I want you to hear that you do not play a less important role. In fact, you play a critical role in ministry, critical role. And that I don't want you to hear that we cannot learn and serve together. For God has designed us to work together, although giving specific roles and instructions and offices that we can and cannot serve in. So that really is not my heart that you hear that you are unequal, unimportant, and you're outside of the camp. I want you to know we cannot get around the content of these texts. They're very clear, and at the end of the day, the Bible The Bible, not my opinions. The Bible must guide our lives. So we must labor, friends, to be be true to the text, avoiding overreaction from the errors of the past or interpreting passages in light of our experiences or interpreting Scripture in light of our desires. As you can see, these are complicated matters complicated. And undergirding Colossians 3, verse 18 through 4, verse 1, are the important questions of how do you and I interpret the Bible? What do we obey literally, and what do we apply in principle? And I've taken the time to walk through this because I think it's important for you to understand how do we handle Scripture. Because I think interpreting wrongly Handling scripture wrongly can lead you down some very wrong, harmful, not God-honoring paths. I don't don't think that sloppy hermeneutics or sloppy interpretive rules that bend the Bible to culture ultimately leads you to a healthy life. In fact, it it leads to lessening the authority of the Bible in our lives. The Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 1, paragraph 4, says this. The authority of the Holy Scripture, this document, because of which it ought to be believed and obeyed, does not depend upon the testimony of, of any man, any church, 
but entirely upon God, its author. So the authority of this document does not depend on me. It doesn't depend on this church. It doesn't depend on the denomination. It doesn't depend on any of, any of those, those things. It depends entirely upon God, its author. Therefore, it is to be received, fully received, because it is what it is, the word of God. So as we look at that, I want you and me not just this week, even last week. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. I want you to receive those things. I want us to be obedient to them. I want us to be people of the text, giving careful thought and willing obedience because this is the word of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God. I don't want us just to, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. We say, yes. Thanks be to God, you have given us your word, and it is authoritative because it is from God for his people. So, do you got that? Do, you get, do I at least get an amen? Yeah, thank you. So, it is important because underneath the call for wives to submit and slaves to obey and, and masters to be fair is this, this commitment to order our lives according to the text. We order our lives according to Scripture. In other words, we all are submissive to what the Bible calls us to do. All of us. If you are in Christ, you are to order your lives according to the text because that's what the Bible calls us to. So let's start with Jesus-centered women. In Colossians, each member of, of the household is called to specific areas of obedience, right? You've got husbands are commanded in the imperative, you are commanded to love your wives. In the good, the bad, and the ugly, you are commanded to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up wholly, completely for her. Love your wives. Children are to obey their parents as is fitting, for it pleases the Lord. That is why we do it, children. You obey your parents because it pleases God. And the primary call for a wife here in this text is one of submission. The word submission in the Greek means to place oneself under. The word is in the middle voice, which means absolutely nothing to you, but it, it means something that you do personally. You submit yourself personally. It, it is something you do for yourself. You, you are personally placing yourself under. It means to submit voluntarily. It doesn't mean submit like that. It means I lovingly desire to submit, to place myself underneath. The word is used also for the submission that Christ has for the Father. Christ willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ, part of the Trinity, in the Godhead, willingly did what? He submitted himself to the Father's will. 
Huh. So if Christ is willing to do this, what does that say for us? We also see in Ephesians chapter 5 that there is mutual submission that we have to one another. We submit ourselves willingly to one another. We also see that in the church as it works out. As members, you have taken vows and promises that you would come underneath and willingly submit yourselves to the care, protection, and the discipline of the elders. Willingly, you say, yes, I entrust myself to you. I don't always understand, but I entrust myself to you. So the basis for this submission is twofold. First, it is based upon a divinely given ordering of life. The Bible clearly teaches that there is an ordering of, of leadership and an ordering of responsibility all throughout Scripture. This God-given structure, structure, while saying nothing about one's value, forms our very base. Our very base. Ephesians 5. For the husband, and listen to how this ordering works out and how there's parallels going on. For, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body, and is himself its savior. Now, the church submits to Christ. So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So there's a, a paralleling, a mirroring that is going on here. And it is a God-given, a divinely ordered life that God is setting up for his people. It's mirroring the gospel, right? As, as Christ is the head of the church and he gives himself for, so husbands are to do this. And wives are a picture of, of the beauty of the, the bride that Christ has come to redeem as the church is submitting to Christ, so wives are to submit to their loving, caring, sacrificial husbands. Secondly, we see that submission is based upon reverence and love for Christ. Colossians 18 explicitly says, in the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Therefore, the motivation for embracing willing and joyful submission is the lordship of Christ. That's, that's your motivation, the lordship of Christ. In other words, this is a means of worship and submitting to Christ at the same time. It's an opportunity to express my worship and love and admiration to Christ himself. As I'm submitting myself to Christ, I'm also submitting myself to my husband. This is a way of worshiping God with my life. And I can hear some wives say, but you haven't met my husband, right? It's not giving any caveats here. What we see here is a beautiful way that Jesus, being the very core of our lives, he transforms every earthly relationship that we have. Christ doesn't negate earthly relationships and say, ah, oh, you're saved. 
clean slate, do whatever you want. In fact, what does he do? He lifts them up, redeemed lives and redeemed marriages. He lifts them up to a higher plane. Now that you are in Christ, you are saved. You get to reflect the gospel. What a responsibility, a glorious responsibility for a husband and wife to say, we have an opportunity, honey, to reflect the gospel in how you love and how I submit and how our children are even obeying. It reflects the gospel. What a huge opportunity. Our relationship has been elevated to a higher plane. You see, there is something gloriously beautiful about a woman who understands and embraces a Jesus-centered submission. Scripture, 1 Peter calls it adornment. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, hear that, even if they are jerks, even if they are not believers, even if they don't do what you want them to do, even if they are fill in the blank, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Hear that. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. They adorn themselves with doing what the gospel calls them to do. Submitting. It's an adornment. It's like putting on the most beautiful clothing and, and jewelry and saying, look at the gospel. Look at me. Even though you do not perform and do the duties of a, husband, a faithful husband, even though you might not be a believer, look at me. I am a display of God's work. And it is beautiful. And you watch out, buddy. You may be won over to Christ. There's something inherently wrong with a woman who fails to embrace even a, a Second Timothy kind of conduct. Where the, in Second Timothy, uh, or sorry, Second uh, Timothy, Titus two, it says, "Train the young women to love their husbands and children, and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands." that the word of God may not be reviled, spit upon, despised. Train young... So that's one of the responsibilities... Women's ministry, what a huge call, right? To train our young women to, to do these kind of things, to, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to work at home, to be kind, to be submissive to their husbands. Why? So that God's word... God's word is never reviled. So what we believe lines up with the word of God. Our actions line up with the word of God. So positively, I see that Jesus, a Jesus-centered womanhood as, being, being, um, as a spirit and actions, 
that honor God-given authority, that, exp that express love for Christ through submission and embrace the value and importance of supportive roles and ministry. So let me clarify, ready, Connor? Let me clarify a few things that submission is not. Just to be absolutely clear. A number of years ago, I found this, you know, I, I kind of, I think I admitted this last week, I kind of evernote things and I, I clip things and I find things. Um, and I found this helpful list of what submission is not. And granted, it really pushes the limits of um, alliteration to the very limits, really pushes it. But I think there's important points to consider. Here's the first one. Submission is not inequality. Men and women have equal value in the eyes of God as image bearers. We all bear the image of God. Imago Dei, the image of God, is all upon us. So function does not equal value. Hear that. Function does not equal value. Secondly, submission is not about the infallibility of the husband. <laughs> I am fallible. Every man in this room is fallible, and every wife says, Amen. <laughs> this is all right to do it now. <laughs> and even the men go, I know. Uh, Men need, desire, and should long for help and input from their wives because you are infallible. You, you are fallible, and you have blind spots, and you have areas of weakness. You need your wives' input. Submission is not immobility. Some women think that submission means complete passivity and just says, well, whatever happens, whatever he says, all right, I can't do anything because I'm, I'm a wife, I'm a woman, and it says I've got to submit, so I just got to do whatever I do, whatever he says or whatever they say. Submission is an active word filled with lots of opportunity, filled with lots of opportunity. In our church, we probably have more women involved in ministry than we do of men. Yeah. But there are plenty of opportunities for you to use your gifts, your talents, and all those things while under the submission of the elders of this church and in your home, your husband. There are millions of opportunities for you to use your God-given gifts and talents to the glory of God and for the good of people. So it does not mean immobility. Submission does not mean, Connor, inarticulation. In other words, it does not mean that you cannot share your opinion or your view. It does not mean that, well, now I got to submit. Sew my lips up and just shut up and put up. That's not what it means in your marriage or in the church, okay? It does not mean that you cannot articulate your thoughts. It does mean, it does inform you 
how it is done. And husbands, it also communicates, Ephesians 5, submit to one another carefully, lovingly, how you articulate. Submission is not intellectual stagnation. In other words, it does not mean that you should let your husband do all your thinking for you. <laughs> right? All right, honey, just tell me what to do or tell me what I should think about this. No, you should engage in deep study, read godly books, and think and, and be, have your imagination and your thought life and your prayer life activated as you are thinking about the beauty of the gospel. You don't become stagnant because of submission. Submission does not mean influence impossible. You have great influence. You have great influence. Know that. Hear that. And submission does not negate that. And last one. This, this was really, really a stretch. Um, iniquitous manipulation. Big word, right? <laughs> but iniquitous. You can hear the word iniquity, right? And basically, iniquity means uh, grossly unfair, morally uh, repulsive, evil. So you should not use your position in submission for manipulation. I've heard this phrase used a lot. He may be the head, but I am the What is that? Manipulation. That's absolute manipulation. And if you would apply that idea to the gospel, well, the church tells Christ which way to go. Uh, that's called heresy. <laughs> that should never happen. Our lives are lined up with what the, what's the relationship that Christ has with the church. And our marriages are lined up in that same way. So I, I realize that there are some of you here who just long for your husband to lead. Yes, I want that. You, and you would find yourself, it'd be much easier to submit to your husband if he was just out in front and doing these things. So what do you do? What do you do? I'm going to give you four, five things. Number one, start with your own heart. Start with your own heart. Take a careful uh, inventory and be careful to be sure that you are not setting an unbiblical or an overly idealized standard for what leadership or headship should be like. Some of us have an overrealized idea of, man, I want my husband to be leading in our front room. Praise and worship. And I want him to be doing this and doing that. I, the way that Paul is preaching on Sunday, I want him to do that at our breakfast table. You know, I, I, go fearlessly. And, and so checking your heart and being sure you aren't developing a, a mentality of, if I was leading, this is what I would do kind of mentality, right? Because that you need to first check your heart for your motives. Secondly, second thing for you to do, pray. 
more than anything else, I would encourage you to seek God's face since real change comes from God alone, right? And he alone really knows your husband's heart. Pray for your husband, not out of bitterness, not out of anger, but Lord, I love my husband. Lord, would you take him and change him and mold him? And Lord, what is that movie that we watched? Uh, War Room. Have you ever read War Room? Watched it? Okay, in your spare time. I know it's kind of sometimes cheesy, yes. Uh, Christian movies sometimes are overly cheesy. But it, the storyline, I go away going, what changed that man's heart? It's a wife in her prayer closet praying for her husband by name and using scripture. Watch it. Number two, or three, cheer. Start with your heart, pray, cheer. When your husband evidences areas of growth in his leadership, encourage him. Don't be corny about it. (laughs) Don't be corny. Encourage him. Praise him. And specifically, and sometimes for a man, it has to be subtle. Subtly tell him how his leadership was effective and how it helped you. Honey, I, I want what happened right here. That was really good. If you can do that again, oh, that'd be great. Good job. Instead, do the, you know what? I really appreciated your direction. That's something that my heart just longs for. And that was beautiful. Thank you. Every husband will go, You'll get a little bit more of that. <laughs> Maybe in time, but you will get more of that. And here's, here's number four. Talk, but don't nag. I think it's appropriate for you to share your, your concerns and your heartbreaking stuff and have really good conversations, but be careful that you do not nag him. You know the difference between talking and nagging? This, the nagging is that yipping dog that's constantly at your ankles that you just want to put outside. <laughs> and a conversation is talking and being honest and loving and respectful to each other. Number five, model. Model. We, we saw it in Titus 2. Modeling. Uh, demonstrate godliness and an appropriate feminine leadership so that you might provide a level of example to your husband. And who knows, you may even win him over, even if he is a believer, you may win him over to being more of a leader in your household by your example, by your model. Quiet leadership. So there is something absolutely gloriously God-centered about a woman who loves Jesus, who absolutely cherishes the Bible, who, who honors her husband, who takes care of her children and gives her life in service to others. There is something absolutely intoxicating 
about that kind of a woman. There are so many ways that women can can make much of the glory of God and display the worth of Jesus in our world. And embracing submission has very little to do with the worth or performance of your husband. Let me say that again. Embracing submission has very little to do with the worth or performance of your husband. It has everything to do with the worth and example of Christ. Women, God calls you to express your Jesus-centeredness through godly submission to your husbands. Now, Jesus-centered employees and employers, I hope to move a lot faster through this. This is another area where, where, where Jesus transformed every, transforms every area of life, every area of life. Employees are given the following commands, obey in everything. In other words, you don't get to pick and choose what things we choose to follow. P- Peter expands this by telling us that we must obey the good and the gentle employer, but also the unjust one, the unkind one, the unfair one. Agreement with the boss or liking the boss is not a prerequisite for following him and obeying him. If there is areas of immorality, that's a different thing. But just because you don't like him does not mean that you don't obey him. Second thing that he, he says, we are to obey with sincerity and integrity. The phrase eye service means the kind of obedience only when the boss is looking or coming around. You know that you are going to be on time for work when the big boss is going to be there, right? If he's not, kind of make it in when you make it in. That's eye service, trying to get the, make sure that the, the eye of the boss is watching you when you do obey. But true kind of obedience has integrity and sincerity. And we are conscientious workers, no matter if somebody is around or if somebody is not around. We work hard. Secondly, we, we see work as worship. Jesus-centered workers see their gifts, their strength, their their life as a gift from God to be used as an offering to him. My work, whether it be throwing garbage, teaching kids, caring for children at home, or being a wonderful retired person, whatever it is, everything that you do is an act of worship. And we also ultimately see in verse 25 that we are accountable. The ultimate accountability for our lives comes from Jesus. So employers are also given instructions. They're also given instructions. First, employers are commanded to be fair and just. People in authority should not take advantage of their position and use it to be abusive, to get gain. They are to be fair and just. And we must realize that every position of authority comes from God's authority. But we also see, uh, uh, masters, um, employers, that you are accountable. 
you are not at the top of the totem pole. You are not the top of the pyramid. The food chain does not begin with you consuming everyone. You are accountable. People in authority must realize that there is someone greater than them. And one day, we will all give an account before God for the way that we treated our employees. There is no absolute power in any position. All power is dependent upon the power and rule of God and God alone. So Paul, Paul's point is simple and profound. Work is worship. Do you worship and love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? If you're worshiping God that way on Sunday morning, how much should you also be doing that in the work world? God calls us to transform the marketplace into a platform for the gospel. Wherever you work, it is a platform for the gospel. So let me press in with a few questions. Are you known as a hardworking, conscientious person who is full of integrity, being watched or unwatched? Full of integrity. Uh, when your boss looks at the list of employees, do you bring great joy or grief to his or her heart? Oh. John Smith, I love this guy. I love the work that he does. He is an asset to this whole company. Do, do you show subtle signs of disrespect? And subtle can be like, that's subtle. A boss sees that, that's an exclamation mark. Do you show subtle signs of disrespect? Do people come to you with complaints about the management team? And often when they do, how do you receive it? I know. Casper again. He always does that. He always says that. I never get time. I never. Do they come to you? And then how do you use your work as a platform for the gospel? Sorry, Al. Um, do you work harder on projects that you know you are going to be inspected on? As a former teacher, I'll tell you, when I, when I was getting evaluated, those lesson plans were never more complete and never more vibrant than when my principal was going to come and watch me. Woo! Room is amazing. But the second that they're out the door, it's like, I just need to sit down. <laughs> Do your employees know that you are a fair and honest person? Do you, can, you, can they express concern and give input without fear? Five days a week, you are in direct contact. I'll do seven days a week for some of us. Direct contact with people who get to know you by your work. The work that you produce and the way that you lead. My question is simple. Do they see anything that reflects Jesus? Anything. I want to remind you that the end game of your employment is not a check. The end game of your employment is not a rent payment. The end, of, end game of your employment is not retirement to Florida. 
the end game ultimately is to work heartily for the Lord and not for men, including yourself. Jesus-centered living transforms everything, especially how you work. The power of the gospel is amazing, isn't it? It transforms every area, every arena, every segment of the, the, every relationship that we know. The lordship of Christ extends to all areas of life in ways that are absolutely revolutionary. Missy Day Church, I want you to see that there is a powerful opportunity in every relationship that you have. Every relationship. Every person that you casually or intentionally come in contact with, it is a powerful opportunity to share the gospel, to portray the gospel. We can show people that following Jesus actually works. We can show them when husbands love their wives. We can show them when children obey their parents. We can show them when wives are submissive to their husbands. We can show it when when employees do work as unto the Lord. And we can show it when employers are fair and kind and just. The hope for the family, the hope for the church, the hope for our nation is that each of us lives into our distinctive roles by asking this all-important question, what does it mean today for Jesus to be at the core of my life? Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, the authority by which Scripture speaks comes from you and you alone. And it is good. You have spoken to us today through your word. And Lord, I pray that the soil of our hearts is soft and fertile for these seeds to be planted, to grow, and to bear fruit in our lives. Lord, may it be known about Missio Day Church that the gospel changes lives, that it transforms every relationship that we are part of. And Father, we thank you for how you have so nourished us this morning with your word. And Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, would you nourish us as we feed on Christ our Savior by faith. Yes, we pray in Jesus' name.